Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of IndefensiblePlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Before we begin, I just want to say if you're enjoying the show and you would like to ensure it has a future, consider supporting it. You can do that in places like patreon.com slash plants, where you can give a small monthly contribution to help keep the show up and running, or you can buy a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, did you know we have customizable merch, or stickers. Links to all of those can be found in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. So go check it out and consider helping keep the show up and running. But today we're revisiting a conversation I had back in 2018, and it's a really important conversation because it emphasizes a point that I make time and time again, that plants equal habitat. And if we care about biodiversity and we want to do something to slow biodiversity loss on this planet, we have to start with plant communities, both restoring and protecting native intact plant communities. This conversation was with Pearson Hill, a biologist for the Fish and Wildlife Research Institute in Florida, and Pearson works with salamanders, specifically the critically endangered flatwood salamander. It's a wonderful little species, but as you're going to hear, to protect the species for future generations, it all has to start with plants. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Pearson Hill. I hope you enjoy. Pearson Hill, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How about you tell us all a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Sure. I'm a biologist with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Florida is actually pretty unusual among state natural resource agencies in that we actually have a a research division. That's called Fish and Wildlife Research Institute. And within that, I work in the reptile and amphibian subsection. And my main responsibilities there are conducting research that informs management, regulation, and conservation. But lately, I've been doing a lot more applied conservation. And uh, most of my projects have been focused on imperiled pond breeding amphibians. Um, But I've also worked on snakes and turtles. Next week, I'm going to start trapping alligator snapping turtles, which look like King Koopa. (laughs) That's a perfect reference. I think that everyone can get their head wrapped around. Uh, That's fascinating stuff. And you mentioned this disconnect, or at least there's a difference between kind of the uh, the management side of things and the applied kind of things. What do you mean in terms of that? Right. So we have, you know, separate responsibilities within the, the FWC. There's people that actually do management of landscapes. And those are people that set fires and um, create wildlife plots and maintain roads. And then there's people that um, do research like me. And so what I do is supposed to filter down to them to inform them how to improve the landscape in order to conserve these uh, species that we're responsible for. Awesome. So you kind of have both camps working together in hopes that, like you said, it'll all kind of culminate into better management and protection of the species and the habitats they require. That's the idea. (laughs) In theory and practice, uh, I'm sure some days are better than others. So you obviously sound like a a herp guy. What what are some of the projects, at least species-wise, that you're most excited about or, you know, uh, especially from the conservation standpoint, what have you focused a lot of energy on lately? So most of my time is spent on a species called the flatwood salamander. They are a mole salamander. So there's 32 species of mole salamanders. They're only found in North America. 
And they're called mole salamanders because they spend the overwhelming majority of their time underground burrowing. Hmm. And uh, the flatwood salamander is unusual among its relatives. It does a lot of very peculiar things, and it's very ecologically sensitive. And uh, because of that, it's disappeared from the vast majority of its uh, historical range and is on uh, the verge of extinction. Wow. That's alarming, but again, really nice to know that there's boots on the ground concerned about this organism. But, you know, anyone who's listening or has subscribed to this podcast, this is a plant podcast. What are we doing talking about salamanders? I love salamanders. I'm not saying this is a value judgment, but it sounds to me like in order to conserve a species, you have to think bigger than just individuals, right? That is exactly right. And via my enthusiasm for the flatwood salamander, I have almost become as enthusiastic for plants as I have for herbs. <laughs> and um, I'll kind of have to walk you sure. <laughs> step by step as to why plants matter for the flatwood salamander. And, uh, you know, it may take me a little while to, to guide you and your listeners there. So feel free to interrupt me <laughs> if I prattle on too much. Right on. Well, take us on this journey. Sure. Yeah, I'll start off with the longleaf pine ecosystem, which I'm sure most of your listeners are somewhat familiar with. Mm -hmm. It used to encompass 70 million acres stretching from southeastern Virginia all the way through most peninsular Florida and west to east Texas. Subsequent to European arrival, most of it has been logged, turned to commercial uh, pine plantations, turned to agriculture and developed. And so only about two to three percent of it remains in an ecological intact form. And the longleaf pine ecosystem is a fire maintained ecosystem, a fire dependent ecosystem. And that means if it isn't regularly disturbed by fire, the condition of the ecosystem changes and reverts to a different steady state. Basically, mm. shrubs and hardwood trees grow up and uh, eventually will outcompete the longleaf pine canopy and change the structure. Right. And a lot of times people think of niche in this context of, well, it's here, it belongs here, but you could walk into a system that's been denied fire and think, oh, these are the, the component species, but fire is truly part of the niche of this longleaf pine ecosystem. That's exactly right. And it's absolutely critical. And so the Mesic Flatwoods community is what the Flatwood Salamander lives in. So the Mesic Flatwoods is a subset of the larger longleaf pine community. And Mesic means seasonally wet. Okay. And so in the Apalachicola National Forest, that's where I do most of my work on the Flatwood Salamander. It's dominated by Mesic Flatwoods. And that means during the winter and during the summer, the water table is actually pretty high. And it lends itself to... Um, a lot of swamps, um, especially small wetlands called dome swamps, being dotted across the landscape. So these dome swamps, they get their name because when fires burn through the pinelands surrounding them, the fires will hit the edges and prune the shrubs and trees down to smaller size where the middle is more protected so the trees go taller. And so in profile, they look like a dome after huh. a while. That's cool. So these dome swamps are dominated by pond cypress, and a lot of them are really cool because they get uh, fire pruned at some interval, and so they get dwarfed. And you'll you'll have a 700-year-old tree that's only 20 feet tall and all gnarled and oh. looks like an ant. Wow. Yeah, so they can be really beautiful. But very few of them, of those 500, 700-year-old ones remain. It's actually dwarf ones that weren't logged. Following the Civil War, most of these little isolated wetlands in the middle of nowhere, they almost all got logged completely through of their cypress. 
And so what came back in these dome swamps were larger numbers of smaller trees. So cypress came back in higher densities. And what also came back was black tupelo, mm-hmm. uh, Nyssa biflora. You may have heard of Tupelo. Its claim to fame is uh, Tupelo honey, which is a uh, kind of highly coveted Delicious. Uh, honey variety. <laughs> I love it. Yes. But it's actually a problem in, in these dome swamps. It, and it's kind of counterintuitive, but this is a wetland, a swamp, but it actually is maintained by fire. Hmm. And so most people wouldn't think of wetlands needing fire, but this is absolutely the case for these environments to support things like the flatwoods elementor. Wow. So this degradation, you're starting to see where just removing one component, let alone fragmenting and all the other issues that come with humanity uh, and encroachment, uh, really is starting to set the stage for a collapse of an entire system that depends upon just fire to keep it maintained. That's right. So um, in places like the Apalachicola National Forest, it's actually lauded as one of the most aggressive prescribed fire management areas in the country. And so they've historically had a really good prescribed fire program. But the problem is prescribed fires are overwhelmingly implemented in the cooler, wetter months of the year. So January, February, March. And during that time, the wetlands are full of water. And so the prescribed fires stop at the edges of the wetlands and don't burn through. What would have happened naturally is in the southeast During the late spring and early summer, we have a regular seasonal drought that occurs like clockwork. And all these ponds dry down. And at the same time, we get regular afternoon thunderstorms that produce a lot of lightning. So in May and June, you get a lot of lightning and you get dry fuels and you get dry ponds. So a lightning would strike and it would burn across a landscape for days sometimes weeks uninterrupted, and it would crawl through these little dry wetlands. It would burn out all the uh, dead vegetation. It would kill the shrubs, and it would keep them very open and grassy. And because of decades of burning in the winter, the fire has just stopped at the edge, Hmm. fire after fire after fire, and now these wetlands are just these almost impenetrable thickets of shrubs. Yeah, and you're dealing with a climate that, at least up north, other people don't have to worry about. I'm sure a lot bigger variety of plants especially can get in and established if you don't have that checks and balance of regular burning during the dry period. That's exactly right. And so some of the most insidious plants that we deal with, we call them ecologically invasive because they're native to the landscape, Mm. but they don't belong in the density in the places they are right now. So things like Thai Thai, we have red Thai Thai and black Thai Thai, and they're both equally awful. But once they get into a wetland, they take over and there's kind of a uh, negative feedback cycle where they just continue to keep fire out because they're so hard to burn. So what happens is when these shrubs occupy the entire basin of a pond, they completely shade out the water column or the understory of the pond that used to be open and grassy and covered in herbs and forbs. And so it causes a whole range of negative ecological consequences that have cascading effects for not only all the plants, but also the salamanders, which we'll get to, and the crayfish and the dragonflies and on and on and on down the food web. Hmm. So I'll tell you why the salamander needs plants. Do it. So because the the salamander evolved in this fiery landscape where every one to three years, fires would sweep across and blow through its wetland, keep it open and grassy, very little accumulated organic matter. So basically you'd have this inside the wetlands, this lush carpet 
of things like pipeworts and lobelia and butterworts and on and on and on and form this thick layer of herbs and a lot of decumbent rosette forming herbs too and so all the leaves would overlap and then growing up through these rosette forming herbs you would have all these emergent wetland grasses like beet sedges and various aristida and the flatwood salamander is super unusual in that it doesn't lay its eggs in water like most of its relatives it does something pretty dumb, if you ask me. It puts its eggs in the ponds when they're dry in the fall. <laughs> and the eggs just sit there and wait for water. And amphibian eggs, I mean, most people probably know they're just like little gooey sponges. And so yeah. they're incredibly sensitive to desiccation and heat. And so the salamanders, they migrate into the ponds in October and November during the very first rainy cold fronts of the year. And so the ponds are dry. They come out at night in the rain, go into the ponds. They uh, converge on these dense thickets of herbs and grasses, and they court. And a male put down a little spermatophore, which is this little packet of sperm. He sets it on the uh, floor of the pond. A female picks it up, and then she crawls around for several nights, fertilizing small clusters of eggs. And instead of putting all her eggs in one place, like a lot of amphibians do, she scatters clusters of maybe anywhere from one to 20 in a bunch of different locations. And it's kind of a bet hedging strategy because she doesn't know what the pond's going to do in the future. She doesn't want all of her eggs to hatch in a little puddle that's only there for a couple days, but she also doesn't want to lay them up in the pond so high that they're never inundated. (laughs) So yeah, it's a really risky strategy, but apparently it's worked for them for, you know, several millennia. Uh, It's just the last hundred years that it started to fail. So yeah, the eggs sit there, and within about uh, two weeks, the embryos get to a stage where they can pop out of the egg as soon as rain fills up the pond and inundates the eggs. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable to watch them hatch. Yeah, as soon as water inundates them, they just start bouncing around in the egg, (laughs) kind of like a bouncy house, trying to pop that capsule open. And they come out raring to go, usually. Pretty amazing to watch. But uh, yeah, so that thick herb layer I was talking to about, pipeworts, and um, various dicanthelium that forms this basically stable air layer that's about two inches, three inches thick above the soil that holds in moisture and moderates temperature and protects those eggs for you know anywhere to six weeks before they hatch. Wow, so these plants are acting like a nursery chamber that's primed for this species' bizarre one-off ecology. That's a great way to put it. Huh. And um, so the cool thing is that flatwood salamander larvae are also unlike their relatives in that they are very vividly striped. they got these beautiful gold and dark brown racing stripes. So when they hatch out, they spend the day hiding in these linear-leaved emergent grasses like I was talking to you about, uh, especially beak sedges is a really good one. So if you look inside, the, like if you imagine an inundated water column just maybe six to eight inches high, just filled full of an elaborate matrix of grass leaves, and the larvae just clinging to them, they're almost invisible during the day. Wow, grass camo. Yeah, exactly right. And um, a lot of the other species in the same microhabitats are also striped. The crayfish and the dragonfly larvae and a lot of the tadpoles too. So yeah, the grasses that grow in conjunction with the herbs are also important for another part of the salamander's life cycle. Dang, that is remarkable. And 
again, a testament to just the detail that's needed to understand not only what a species is, but what it and how it integrates with its environment. I mean, these are probably perspectives that took many different avenues of research to tease apart, correct? Yeah, it's taken uh, over 10 years of crawling around on my hands and knees and seeing where the salamanders are and where the salamanders aren't. And um, I've learned a lot from my colleagues as well, who spent a lot of time in the field. But yeah, the the intimate connection between fire and the plants and the salamander is just really breathtaking. But it's also been unsettling how all of that has collapsed so quickly because of the fire issue. Sure. And I guess two questions based on that is, A, what is the status of the salamander as of right now? And are you seeing management working for it? And B, are we changing the way that we're approaching fire in this ecosystem and especially these managed fires? You know, are people open to changing the timing of fire to kind of suit the needs of these these domed wetlands? Yeah, that's a good question. So the salamander is gone from 90 percent of its range. It used to occur from coastal South Carolina down through northern peninsula Florida and west to about Mobile Bay right along the coast where the incidence of lightning is the highest. It's very low, wet, not only needs it flatwoods, but they be in a wet savanna too. So if your listeners are familiar with like pitcher plant prairies from the Panhandle, Florida, they live and they love pitcher plant prairies. And so it's an absolutely beautiful, breathtaking landscape. So even in a a beautifully managed landscape like the Apalachicola National Forest, they've declined about 90% in the past 20, 30 years. And uh, it's because their wetlands have ecologically succeeded away from that grassy, herbaceous condition that they need for their eggs and for their larvae. So what is being done? We realized initially that fire alone couldn't do the job. You can't just go in and and torch a pond that hasn't had fire in it for 50 years Mm. and reset it. You just can't get it to catch. And those the conditions under which it would catch, you are not allowed to light fires anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And it's pretty amazing. So the Forest Service and the Nature Conservancy have actually contracted out restoration crews that send in a couple dozen guys with chainsaws and, and machetes and backpack sprayers, herbicides and they hack and spray and hack and spray and they drag and drag and drag and end up with these giant piles of shrubs and hardwood tree trunks all sitting around the edge of the wetland after they're done. Basically, they're just trying to remove hardwood biomass and allow sunlight to Mm. penetrate back through the canopy to the floor of the pond. And so these piles of tree trunks and limbs and stuff uh, are sitting out in the uplands, and so they get burned up in the next prescribed fire. And the whole goal is to generate a response in the uh, vegetation community, the grasses and stuff like that, that will allow a fire to carry through the basin. One problem is that a lot of these ponds have decades of muck accumulated in the basin of them. And so there's no seed bank in that muck bed, or if it may be under the muck, so it can't germinate in response to light. And so this muck problem is something we have yet to figure out. We're resorting in some instances where there are no more salamanders, there's absolutely no hope of them, to using heavy machinery to just peel back the whole floor of the pond like a, like a scab <laughs> and, um, and just scrape it down to the underlying clay or sand and just start from scratch. And it's actually surprising what kind of seed bank will be underneath 30 years of muck sometimes. And uh, it sounds really heavy handed. And at first I thought it was. But after seeing it implemented, I've, uh, I'm a convert. <laughs> and um, so that's kind of step one. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's important to note that, yes, a lot of these issues do seem heavy handed. And in many ways, certain avenues are. 
But these are responses to extreme situations. And again, if people value biodiversity and value this integrative way of restoring what at least some of what has been lost, sometimes those initial inputs have to be pretty drastic. Right. That's exactly right. We're, we just call it a hard reset on the whole <laughs> ephemeral pond ecosystem. And uh, I mean, th- when we do that, there's usually nothing living in it any way to hurt mm-hmm. other than Tai Tai, of course. <laughs> but where the salamanders still are, which are very few places, we use a much more delicate approach um, where we do much more um, hands on stem by stem applications of herbicide and, and machinery. So the whole goal is to allow the pyrogenic, the fire-maintained wetland community, the plant community, to regenerate enough that fire can actually carry through these these basins again. Actually getting fire to be applied when the ponds are dry, though, is still a major logistical and political hurdle that we haven't quite figured out. Yeah, that's a really good point is that there's so many people and, and stakeholders to consider during these time periods. And as we've seen in recent news, occasionally fires can go awry we're not in 100 percent control so it is it's hard to sit back and go uh we have to consider all of these issues but if you don't consider them then you're you're backing yourself into a corner politically like you said and then the community suddenly is against these efforts and that's just no good for anyone exactly right and it it makes it very difficult because, you know, uh, ecologists and people trying to conserve species like the flatwood salamander are putting all this pressure on land managers to burn hot, burn dry, burn frequently. But the conditions hot and dry also make fires a lot harder to control. And um, it makes uh, the probability of fires escaping and um, impacting private property or, you know, smoke blowing across roadways, uh, it increases those chances. And so usually if a, you know, land manager has to choose between a salamander or being held liable for burning someone's house down, it's an easy choice for him. <laughs> yeah. So we, that said, we are making very small baby steps. So um, in Apalachicola National Forest, one strategy we've been employing, which is just a triage strategy at this point, is The Forest Service will go in, let's say in moderate conditions in March, and burn the upland landscape. And while everything is still black and regenerating, they'll come back, you know, a month, six weeks later before there's enough fuel to carry another fire. And then they'll just burn the wetlands by themselves. And it works, but on a very small level. So last year, this is kind of a funny story, it required a exemption from the governor's office to burn five acres of pond cypress <laughs> dome swamp habitat in Apalachicola National Forest while they were dry. The state was, a, there was a statewide bird ban because of wildfires in the peninsula. And they had at least 20 different agency vehicles out there and pumper trucks and you know dozens of guys to burn five acres of wetland. So it's really inefficient and resource intensive for them to manage for these little dinky wetlands one by one by one like that. So it's really just a triage approach at the moment until we figure out uh, more of a landscape level approach. Sure. And this is a very pertinent reminder to listeners to understand why it's important to not let things get to this point, why conservation matters, why land conservation especially matters. Because without it, you don't need to destroy the land outright to degrade it to the point where it's not supporting what it used to. Uh, And then often requires massive amounts of resources and time and energy and and just human power to alleviate those issues. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And so um, it's it's kind of hard to figure out, you know, where the balance is here between practical human concerns, property and, you know, obscuring the vision of motorists on busy highways and that kind of thing and our very pressing need to conserve biodiversity. Yeah, like I said, it's getting the fire right, timing it in the early summer and at one to three year intervals in these habitats not only conserves the salamander, but a whole other a suite of pond breeding amphibians and all these super imperiled endemic plants. So the Apalachicola National Forest is an epicenter of plant diversity. We have tons of amazing endemics and they all rely on the same fire frequency and seasonality that the salamander does. So when you manage for the salamander, you're also managing for dozens of other awesome species that are very imperiled. Yes, and that's a really good point is people can get up in arms about, well, why this species over this species? Well, if you are smart and plan right, you pick the right species to be kind of the poster child for this event. Now you're benefiting whole ecosystems. That's exactly right. And, you know, a salamander, it's just this little gooey four inch long thing that spends most of its life on the ground. 99.99% of people will never see one, even biologists. So, you know, it's kind of hard to, to sell people on a salamander, but we're making strides. We're making strides. Yeah. Public awareness is increasing. But yeah, I mean, we can really only go up from here. Sure. And you have obviously been bitten by the bug. Uh, you you are someone who speaks with a lot of passion and desire, and it's, it's very evident that you care deeply about this system. So starting as a herp guy, caring about salamanders and, and broadening your viewpoint is, is phenomenal. You know, what are some plants that have really started to stand out to you during this process? You are obviously getting to see, like you said, so many unique endemic species. There's got to be some favorites in there somewhere. Absolutely. So, of course, when I started working out in Apalachicola National Forest, I was immediately enamored with the Saracenia, the pitcher plants. <laughs> and and uh, so we got five species in the, in the National Forest. I spend most of my days just frolicking around amongst them. <laughs> and I also I, I have them at home. I have a, a couple hundred. I've you know germinated seeds the past two years. And so it's. It, you know, it's it's something I work with in nature, and it's something I as, as a hobby at home. But then I've gotten more into the uh, orchids that live in the flatwoods, all the platanthera and the calipogon. And then, you know, because of all those species that the salamander relies on, I've come to really like seeing all these otherwise unappreciated things like pipeworts and all the cool little switchgrasses and sure. um, white top sedges and stuff like that. But, I mean, you could spend, you know, the, in your entire life wandering around the Apalachicola National Forest and never get a handle on everything that's out there. Yeah, I think so few people realize just what a biodiversity hotspot that whole region of North America is. But, you know, Apalachicola is just by far one of the best hotspots for, like you said, plants, but amphibians. It's it's just remarkable what I see from biologists that do work in that area. Yeah, I really can't ask for a, a cooler place to work. And uh, so I'm really lucky in that regard. Yeah. So one plant that is kind of iconic of late spring, early summer fires is Calipogon multiflorus. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called the mini flowered grass pink. And it only blooms following a spring or summer fire. Wow. And so th there was areas that it was unknown for decades because the fire regime favored winter fires. And then finally they shifted it to a May fire. And then two, three weeks later, boom, the orchid pops up for the first time. Wow. So it's just one 
and a whole suite of ecological lessons that all point to the very same thing. May, June fires are what the whole communities are adapted to. So wiregrass, which is the dominant grass in the uplands in that landscape, the rate of germination of its seed is dramatically affected by the timing of fire. So if you burn outside that early summer window, it has dramatically less seed set. Huh. So it's on and on and on and on. Yeah, I mean, these kinds of co-evolutionary dynamics in systems that are so tuned to these pulses of disturbance regimes, it's it's staggering to get your head wrapped around, but it is so good that people recognize it. But, you know, people listening to this, people that care about conservation are, are, are fired up and they want to do stuff. You know, big picture, small picture, people living in Apalachicola, people living outside of it, from your professional conservationist and research position – what do you recommend to the average listener when it comes to protecting species that are endangered or ensuring that other species don't follow that way? What can the average listener do to do better by ecosystems like this? Um, first and foremost, advocate for fire and ecological fire and fire management. So right now we have this huge gap of understanding. You know, a lot of people are still operating under the smoky, the bear paradigm that forest fires are bad and kill animals. And um, we're now learning that fire is critical for a lot of ecosystems across North America. And as we see more and more destructive wildfires out west, we're saying maybe fire has a role in landscapes we wouldn't have otherwise thought it had a role, the desert southwest or the Rocky Mountains. And um, that fire could be used there both as a tool to manage for wildlife, but also to mitigate for destructive wildfires. So one huge problem right now is the United States Forest Service, their emergency wildfire fighting budget and their fire management budget are the same pot of money. And so when there's all these destructive wildfires out west, it saps all the money away from fire management programs on the other side of the country. And the last several years, over 50% of the Forest Service's fire budget has gone to emergency response rather than fire management. I had no idea. Yeah, it's a problem. And so those two pots of money probably would be better served being disentangled and separate. And that requires Congress to act. Sure. And that's that's really important for people to understand, again, this connection between how we're voting and how we're deciding our politics certainly, without a doubt, 100% affects the way conservation and preservation and restoration are practiced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't probably don't have to tell any of your listeners that most conservation and management agencies are dramatically understaffed and giving what we're responsible for and what we intend to do. So yeah, we could always use more people and more money. <laughs> right on. Well, Pearson, I must say that I think both your research and your passion for this ecosystem are an inspiration, and the salamanders and all of the other plants and animals uh, have a friend uh, in you. How do you recommend people find out more about your work and the work that your agency is doing and and get involved whenever they can? You can uh, track down the uh, reptile and amphibian subsection website uh, within the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission Fish and Wildlife Research Institute website. And we've got several information pages there um, outlining what we're doing. It's not very detailed at the moment, but we're uh, looking to upgrade it very soon. Otherwise, I don't have a lot of Internet presence for what I do. Right on. Well, again, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us. And I think I speak for everyone listening when I wish you the best of luck and to just keep at it. The salamanders and all the plants. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. And, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. I love the podcast and I'm, I'm uh, really honored to be a guest. 
Oh, thanks, man. I do appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep in touch. You are welcome back on anytime. All right. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Very important stuff. Once again, plants equal habitat. We don't get anywhere unless we have habitat for all organisms on this planet, both giant and microscopic, to live and do their thing. And plants set that foundation. Plants open up our finite planet by taking energy from our nearest star and turning it into food. It's amazing what they can do. And no matter where you are, no matter what part of the ecosystem you care about, taking care of plants will take care of it. I promise you that. I thank Pearson again for that time he took to talk with us that day. It was a really great conversation and it was really cool to bring it back. I thank you all for listening. And of course, if you want to support this show, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants or by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. And all of those links are at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. So you don't have to work to find them. But of course, thank you all for listening. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.